That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, as Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend Just Keeps On Trucking. To season seven of the of movies and tea, uh, I'm your host as always, Elle Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. And a new season means a new director's filmography to study, and season seven is features probably one of our biggest names to date, um, as we're going to be spending the season looking back at the filmography of the influential and the one and only Quentin Tarantino. The, well, I mean, to be fair, biggest, I mean, Ang Lee is pretty big too. <laughs> I know, it's just, as I say, it's just like when we talk about like movies people are excited to come in out, it's sort of like, oh, the new Quentin Tarantino movie's opening, or the new Ang Lee movie's opening up. Mm. It's like one of these directors, I mean, both are very visual sort of direct, very visual directors, and we have one that just is so ingrained in the pop culture not only as a filmmaker, but also for elements of his films. That right. Tarantino is like one of these multi-level filmmakers. And at the same time, he's basically the living the video store geek dream of being able to make the sort of movies that he wants. Um, formerly a golden boy of uh, the Weinsteins, he's now obviously... As directors still being heavily courted by studios, as uh, seen by the case of when we came to the selling of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he also basically got um, the ability to remake Star Trek as well as part of his uh, signing contract deal. So, but we're obviously getting ahead of ourselves uh, slightly there, and tonight we're going to be going right back to the start with 1992's Reservoir Dogs, his feature-length debut. Um, and when it comes to Tarantino, I mean, is he a director you sort of watched everything that's sort of come out, Kim, or is he someone you just now like looking to fill in those blanks for? I'm definitely filling the blanks. I think I'm more, um, it's a very odd relationship that I have with Tarantino movies. And it's something that I've wanted to revisit for a while, uh, mostly because, I mean, I think pe- people find it really weird, but I mean, when Kill Bill came out, I think I was 15 or something, something like that, and um, 15, 16 probably, and when the movie came out, I I absolutely hated Kill Bill. I thought it was an absolute waste of time. Hated every second of it, and, I, and it was my cousins who dragged me to the theater, and I saw it, and I was so bored. Um... Yeah, And then I watched it again um, a few years back for a podcast recording. Not ours, obviously. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I ended up realizing that it was pretty... It was, it was a lot better than I had remembered it being. And I think that that's the case for, you know, when we... I went through the same thing when we went through Ang Lee. Where, you know, some movies the first time I watched it when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate it. 
But I think now as you get into movies and you get more into pop culture and you um, a lot of the the different things, um, the little details that they use and, and techniques and stuff. Um, Quentin Tarantino really has a lot of it. I, I can't say I'm really big on his like uh, the stories that he likes to tell maybe or um, I don't know the plot lines in general sometimes but I do think that there's always something that's really like there's some kind of tension and some kind of fun to it in in a very very odd way and and yet a lot of times it does work you know so uh it'll be interesting to go and revisit some movies because you know i i have seen a few of it like i think it's kind of like maybe a little less than half that i've seen um but you know, I have some that I I watched in recent years and I didn't really like, and then some that I watched a long time ago and I remember very little of. So, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting season to say the least. <laughs> I definitely so, and I think one of the great things about this project has been the ability to sort of go back and reevaluate our opinions of certain directors. Certainly, was was the case of season one when we looked at Paul W S Anderson, a director I had essentially dismissed just on the sheer number of Resident Evil movies he's made and then when you obviously look at some of the films that he's made over the years and certainly the style of filmmaking that he brings to it, it really sort of makes you really reevaluate your opinions of that said director so but when it comes to Tarantino I mean I'm unquestionably a huge fanboy of Tarantino's work uh, just through and through since I think since seeing the um, an interview with him on the extras of Pulp Fiction, I've been kind of obsessed with him because here finally seemed to be a director who seemed to be coming from a very similar place when it came to film as myself. Um, just how enthusiastic he obviously talked about film, the ability just to reel off film titles. I think it's inspired my own sort of desire to basically watch everything just to want to be that same sort of film nerdy sort of guy. And then obviously as the, as uh, each film's gone on, as they explored different styles, moving on from the crime genre to make his his uh, films, which both like heavily referenced to Eastern and Western filmmaking with Kill Bill Volume 1. It was fun, obviously, being able to recognise some of the films he was scrapbooking. And I think, certainly when it comes to Tarantino, I think scrapbooking is very much the best way to describe his approach to filmmaking. It's... In, some people have obviously accused him of plagiarism, the fact that he borrows ideas from here and there, but his films have always been about the construction and how he may take ideas, soundtrack samples, pop records, and it's how he brings it all together that just makes it so interesting and fascinating to see. And he's a director that only seems to constantly surprise us with each new film that comes out. He's never been one that we've ever been able to sort of pin down and just know exactly what we're going to get from him. Making each new release as drawn out as the weight often is, but as soon as you have a new film to come out it feels like this wonderful treat to this film that you can sort of dissect and uh spend many an hour sort of going through each each of the scenes and try and find out which what the influences were yeah and i you know and another thing is you know for tarantino i mean one of the big things was um i don't know if it went on tour or if it was whatever but i mean tarantino had this thing called um there was a tarantino in concert that had been in montreal that i went to go see and it just showed um, pretty much a lot of um, acts. Pretty much they acted out a lot of different movies and the musical scenes that um, that went with it. It was like the soundtrack that he used. And I think that was the starting point of when I wanted to reevaluate, re I guess, um, and revisit or just, you know, visit <laughs> for the first time his music that he had. Because, you know, obviously 
Um, soundtrack is also a really big thing in, in his movies and, and whatnot. So, I mean, um, that show was really, really fun. <laughs> that show was really, really fun. And it was led by um, Rumor Willis, which was, a, you know, which is Bruce Willis's daughter. So it was a, it was a really, oh, nice. it was like a really, really fun show to go to. So uh, kind of highlighted a lot of movies that I hadn't seen, especially from a musical standpoint, which is kind of uh, something that I look at when I watch movies a lot. Like I do like soundtrack and sometimes it's, you know, the, especially with Tarantino there, you know, if you didn't like Kill Bill, you at least like the soundtrack a lot because it was <laughs> really, really great. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm excited to see, you know, like where you know where where this is gonna go um especially because you know uh before we started the show we were we were um looking at you know a lot of director trademarks of him and and you know the little things that it's it's all a lot in the detail sometimes and there's a there's a whole lot of different aspects which i think is is probably what makes tarantino more than just you know uh squirting blood and extreme violence you know (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely so. I mean, there's so many aspects to Tarantino's films that it's hard just to pinpoint the exact trademarks that make up his film. I mean, obviously, we've seen reoccurring themes within his work, such as explicit violence, heavy profanity, the extreme use of the N-word, which uh, certainly didn't do any fa- win him any sort of uh, fans with uh, the likes of Spike Lee. Who even went on record to say, uh, what does he think he is? Does he think he's going to be an honorary black man using the N-word like that? To which Tarantino responded, when's the last time anyone cared about a Spike Lee yeah. opening? So, he's, uh, he's certainly one that's never afraid to be fired back at his critics, as well as attracting both critical and praise for his films in sort of equal measure as his, as they've gone across. And he sort of hit that set point now with his films where it's kind of like with South Park and Family Guy. It's sort of like people just know what they're going to get. So it's no point even complaining as I think he memorably put is like, you don't go turn up to a Metallica concert and ask them to turn it down. People know exactly what they're going to get when they see a Quentin Tarantino um, directed movie. But when we look at these uh, shots, I mean, he does obviously have favorite shots, such as like the shots from inside a trunk or the long mm-hmm. tracking shots. We also see like things such as uh, where we have like 360 degree shots as well. And even the use of the God's Eye shot as well, which we will obviously be highlighting as we go through the film as long as well as other sort of minor use shots, such as his use of black and white or perhaps his obsession with feet. <laughs> which I'm sure will come up on more than one occasion as we go through uh, through this filmography. But to, as I said, to kick things off, tonight we're going to be talking about Reservoir Dogs' feature-length debut of 1992. Um, this wasn't his actual first Stabber film, that being uh, My Best Friend's Birthday, a film that was never completed. But basically he views as his self-taught film school, where he would rent a film camera at weekends and go out and shoot bits and pieces for this uh, film about a guy who's trying to set up a birthday party for his friend only for it to go horribly wrong um, many of the elements would later be used to his script for True Romance which he sold which went towards film funding this film um, with a lot of the funding also being helped by his long term producer Lawrence Bender who he met at a Hollywood party and basically encouraged uh, Tarantino to get out there and write a script and Reservoir Dogs being the first 
full-length script that he completed after his so true romance. The film itself is a heist movie where you don't actually ever see the heist. As a group of colour-coded cons are brought together, and then we witness essentially the aftermath as they gather at the warehouse and try to figure out what went wrong and concern themselves with the fact that there may be a rat amongst them. Even for a debut, the, the cast is extremely well stacked with Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Terry and Michael Madison, as well as pulp crime fiction writer, more bizarrely, Edward Bunker and Tarantino himself starring in this film. Uh, the film also marks the um, his one of his lesser known trademarks of casting comedians in in supporting roles as Stephen Wright takes on the role of K Billy, um, whose radio show K Billy's Super Sounds of the Seventies uh, can be heard punctuating very many of the scenes within the film. But Kim, I mean, when it came to Red Our Dogs, was this one you caught the first time around? Was it one you're only sort of catching now? Mm, definitely catching now. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, I've, I've known about uh, by name, by title. <laughs> but I've never actually yeah. known what it's about. <laughs> and I've never really um, known what... So this was completely fresh to me. I had no idea what it was about. I went in and it was... Just, I didn't know who was in it. <laughs> so it was just, you know, go in um, completely first time and then just just watched a movie for what it is and you know it's it you know it i think that reservoir dogs um you know obviously we're talking about a later movie but it reminded me a lot of hateful eight <laughs> but in a okay. really like a better paced way <laughs> <laughs> you can already tell where we're going in hateful eight <laughs> when we get there um but yeah, no, Reservoir Dogs is really, um, not only is it the, the casting is really good. I mean, I'm, I'm personally a big fan of Tim Roth, so I'm always happy to see him on, um, on this, on the screen, you know, and, uh, you know, Har Harvey Keitel, I never remember him in what he's been in, but I always remember who he okay. is. Like, when he acts, I always think that he does a really good job. The movie is pretty fun. I, I really like the, I think the opening scene is one of my favorite moments. Yeah, the, um, the Madonna sequence in the pancake house it's just like you know it really brings in that whole um you know his trademark of having uh the pop culture references kind of embedded inside and you start off right away and you're watching a bunch of dudes sitting around and in, in in their in their black and white suits and they're just sitting around and then they're talking about they're talking of madonna hits and you know what it means and then someone's trying to is explaining what the whole like a virgin origin from <laughs> and then it, it jumps forward into this whole conversation about tipping and and whether you should tip waitresses and, and whatever <laughs> yeah exactly and the great thing about the scene is the fact that you've obviously got these eight eight guys who are going off to pull off a heist that no one is talking about the job they're just having a general breakfast sort of conversation and it so happens to be this really explicit conversation about what madonna's like a virgin is about and this being the first of many of Tarantino's film theories that we will hear over the years. Um, around this time, we also got his Top Gun um, theory, which basically says said that Top Gun's essentially about, you know, Tom Cruise's maverick not being able to deal with the fact that he's gay and that Iceman is um, essentially represents the, you know, the out there gay man saying, you know, come to the gay side, come to the gay side. And the maverick spends the whole film not being able to come to it and... When it comes to the Madonna thing, I think this is one of the things that just grabbed audiences right from the beginning, and it sort of really 
caught people's attention because Tarantino has such memorable dialogue, especially in these sort mm. of early movies. And the fact that we've got this whole speech where Tarantino's uh, Mr. Brown is essentially just holding court, telling this story about um, about what Madonna Madonna's um, like virgin is about, which in the warped world of Tarantino is about this girl who likes to sleep with a lot of guys, and that when she meets a guy with a very large penis, that it reminds her what it's like to be like a virgin. And from here, we obviously go on to the the uh, Mr. Pink's views on tipping, which I can't help but agree with. I think it's a very valid point he makes. And even while this is going on, you've got Joe, who's like the leader of this, the, the sort of crime boss who's organized this heist, who's going through this address book that he's found in a coat. And he's basically there pissing off Mr. Mr. White um, as the fact that, you know, he's just sitting there going, Wong, Tony Wong. <laughs> You've got this whole second conversation that's happening and just the whole way the scene's constructed. The dialogue just feels so natural. It's not the case of just, like, one person's talking, so everyone waits for that person to finish talking. People are talking over each other, and it's got a real sort of natural flow to it. And all at the same time, we're getting introduced mm. to each of these characters. We're getting a taste of their personalities. It's like Mr. Pink, here played by Steve Buscemi, this guy who's very sort of opinionated very thoughtful for the world and at the same time kind of a motor mouth and then we've obviously got Mr. White who's sort of like the older one of the group and sort of like you know he's he's just happy to sort of sit back there and you can tell he's got this sort of relationship with Joe because of the way that he's able he's just there like messing with him constantly so it's a it's a simple scene, but it really gives us a sort of taste of who these guys are. And then, obviously, from there, we're just, like, thrown straight into this heist that's gone wrong. I mean, Tim Roth is lying bloody in the backseat of a car. We've got Harvey Keitel basically trying to reassure him. And it's just this... You're like, what the hell happened? Did I miss something here? <laughs> it's like, we're not used to going from, like, that sort of iconic walking down the street scene, uh, obviously, to um, Little Brown... A uh, little green bag, and I mean, how many times have we seen that? Them, them walking down the street be like replicated in pop culture. I mean, yes, it's a it's a straight rip off of uh, a similar scene in Clockwork Orange, but these moments we just like look at it. We look at the suits and we just like think, oh yeah, that's the rest of our dogs. And we, you, you kind of like when you you see in like pop culture now, and you just like you just know what these things are, and it's weird the place they turn. Like you see us as. as that's why a dog's joke on The Simpsons. And you think, well, kids have never seen this movie. But I'm sure they probably know what it is still. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I said, I knew nothing about Reservoir Dogs. So I don't know anything. <laughs> so um, I might be the only person in the world, judging from this co- where this conversation is going, who doesn't know what that means. <laughs> but... I'm just... I'm just envious that you get to watch some of these things for the first time. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that sometimes... Um, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's good. I think in Tarantino's sense, um, the depth of understanding the depth of his movies is really important to enjoying them. And I think that's why watching it now feels a little bit... Probably what I... I, I can see myself not like disliking this movie if I watched it like uh, maybe 10 years ago, you know? So that's that's okay. the that's the main thing. Like my tastes have changed. I can learn to appreciate Tarantino for what he, what it is. And... 
you know, Reservoir Dogs is, is, you know, right from the beginning, you get hooked into this. And it's like you said, you get this really good idea of all these characters, and you get to match their face to a color. They don't have a name, but they have a color to them. <laughs> and it's it's really great because of, you know, the non-linear way of how the story is shown throughout, that you kind of know who the main players of the story is. Because obviously, you're not following eight people. Or else it turned into Hateful Eight. <laughs> Which would be a <laughs> long story. Um, but... But you're following here, and then you, right away, you know who the main players of this is going to be. You know, who's running the show, and, you know, that Mr. White is kind of the essential character there. And then you have, you know, and then you have, uh, you know, the Mr. Pink who goes off on, on this this rant about tips. And then you have this whole other conversation about, you know, just these things going on. And it feels so natural. Um, and I think that right away, once you get into that, uh, scene and then they get to the warehouse it you know life and death is at hand right now and whether they're gonna get caught and where are these diamonds and and um also where you know like who is there a rat among them and who is this rat and all these more serious questions come into hand when and then all of their characters slowly show up and i'm telling you like mr pink was so suspicious you couldn't tell whether he was you know right from the get-go he's like the obvious guy that you think is just super suspicious is he just like really chicken or he's a weasel or is he just going to (laughs) or is he just faking it all right it's the bishemi isn't it you look at him and you think, God, he just looks like a rat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he just, and the fact that he's already shown himself for being like, you know, have these thoughts about the world around him that, you know, money is very much a key fit, a key driving aspect for him. The fact that even like tipping a waitress a buck, he doesn't see the point in like, you know, where society says, oh, you must tip. Because as he points out, he's like, you don't tip people at McDonald's. It's all like, why do you bother tipping the waitress? And, you know, and they're like, well, you know, it's a hard job and, and uh, you know, this is how they make their wages. And he's like, no, fuck that. She can go get a job somewhere else, learn to type. Um, so we obviously know that money's a very sort of driving force of him. And the fact that you could see him, as you said already, you could see him as being like the guy who is the one who's going to like turn on the rest and steal the diamonds. Um, and I love as well the fact that as these characters are introduced, we get little flashbacks of how they came to be involved yeah. in the heist. I think with Pink, we obviously don't, but we get to see him during like the planning stages and we obviously see like how Mr. White came to join the job. It's like, and then uh, as we go a bit further and we're introduced, Mr. Blonde shows up who, who's played with a plum by Michael mm. Madsen. And this moment Michael Madsen turns up, the fact that, you know, he stopped off to go and get, like, a burger and fries. And he's we already know, like, what he's been doing to this job because of, obviously, the conversation that Pink and White have been having, where he's, like, they've, like, said about how he just basically started shooting everyone up. So we're slowly getting the idea of the, what happened during the heist, even though we never actually yeah. seen, seen this heist. But the way these conversations go and as engaging these conversations are, we're building up this picture in our mind of what happened. And I think that's so clever, just... And it works so well, especially, I mean, you've got a small budget, so you can't obviously do this big high sequence. 
but you can have it so play, you can have characters discuss it so that we think we've seen it, uh, which is very sort of ambitious, especially for a first time director like Tarantino. Yeah, I think that that's really important because um, you know you 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 always think about heist movies, right? And you always think about a heist gone wrong because that's what heist movies usually are. <laughs> a heist gone wrong, you either start with you know if you go Ocean's Eleven, it's planning the heist and executing the heist, and then when you think about movies that execute the heist and then something goes wrong it's the process of how it goes wrong and then the aftermath but here right away we're in the aftermath already and it, it is really really clever and i think that's one of the power of dialogue that tarantino has when he writes that he's able to give you that vivid imagery of just kind of visualizing that scene. But at the same time, you know, because of the nonlinear narrative that he has, that he uses, he also has those, like, moments of flashback where, you know, you see Mr. Pink running down the street and then <laughs> doing whatever he does, right? <laughs> and then, or you have, like, moments of things happening. And yeah, I think one of the best flashes is really in, in this whole moment where, Mr. Orange is telling the story of he's like reciting the story that of, of an anecdote and he's telling it and then all of a sudden you see his character jump between you know the club and then the bathroom scene that he that, that he's part oh, of God, and yes. you just watch this anecdote go by and you're just kind of watching the scene happen and it and it's just so immersive because you're kind of getting drawn into this uh, this story that y you know is a story at that point right so there, there's so much. Um, I think it's it's such a it's such a fascinating way of how it's told. Definitely so, and I I mean I loved when you were saying about Mr. Pink running down the street. I mean obviously it's a scene again lifted from the Cherry on Fat movie City on Fire, and I think there's three big inspirations to this film. Uh, the first being about Tomorrow Two, which is obviously the black and white suits taking a Pelham One Two Three, which is the color coded cons, and then when we look at City on Fire, which is about Cherry on Fat's undercover police officer infiltrating a jewelry heist gang. And we obviously have that scene of him running down the street, which we see replicated with Mr. Pink. And it, unfortunately, there was a lot of stupid people out there who were sort of like, saw that scene and sort of like, oh, Tarantino ripped off City on Fire. And it's like, no, it's, there's about three scenes that are similar that are in City on Fire that are in Reservoir Dogs. It's, yes, he's sort of, he's scrapbooks or he pays homage to these scenes, whatever way you want to look at it. But Reservoir Dogs is very much his own beast compared to City on Fire. But, you can definitely see that Charlie and Fab was a big influence on him at this at the time, certainly. Um, and certainly when you look at when you if you look at the original script and the thanks, um, he gives thanks to both Charlie and Fat and uh, John Woo um, amongst his list of uh, of people giving thanks to. So, I mean, we're just going to say spoiler alert from this point. I mean, if you've not seen Reservoir Dogs like him, just you know, go and watch it if we've intrigued your interest already. When it comes to Orange, I mean, obviously, Orange is our rat here. He's the undercover cop. And for myself, he has the best flashbacks of the film. Just, like, his whole sort of getting prepared to sell himself as his character. And as you said, he tells the story about the Kazi, which is one of my favorite monologues. Yeah. I think if I, ever had to, if I ever need a monologue, then the Kazi story is the one I would mm -hmm. go with. It's such a fun story and they and as you say it's like an anecdote that you know a, 
a, a criminal would tell someone is basically where he's got this uh, weed that he's transporting and he walks into a railway bathroom unfortunately there's like four cops and a German shepherd in there and he has to sort of figure out what how he's going to get out of this uh, situation and even while the story's going on you've got the cops who are telling their own story yeah. about them pulling over some guy um, and him not quite understanding what the police officer was saying so that he almost gets shot as well and Somehow we're, we're never like lost in whose story we're following here. So we've obviously got Mr. Orange telling his story. And at the same time, we take breaks to hear this cop's story as well. Um, so I love all the layers to it. But just the conversation he's having with his like handler and he's like saying, you know, he gives him like this uh, script to read, which obviously has this, this monologue in it. And he's all like, oh, can you just treat it like you're telling a joke? And he's like, you can tell a joke. And he's, he's like, nope. <laughs> So. Yeah, and it's really great because when when you're looking at it and they're trying to get him immersed into this character that he needs to be in for the undercover. So that's why they give him this this story that he needs to tell. And the the details is that he needs to be able to know every single detail of this story, create it or make it up or whatever, but it has to seem natural. And I think that that's why when we have that scene of the bathroom story, maybe he's not telling that whole cop conversation, but in his mind, he's already imagined that scene where he's, you know, he's in that situation and then he's just, go, he's going to the bathroom and then these cops are just continuing their conversation and talking about whatever they're talking about. And then it comes back to reality where he, where he's able to leave and something like that, right? So it, it's such a yeah. detail, like it, it's such a, I think it's such a fascinating way to show that whole scene. Definitely so, and you can see him in his apartment when he's going through the story and he's going through it again and again, and you can see how he's making like little mm. corrections to the script that he's been given because he knows it wouldn't fit his character or it would give away a detail that would slip off. And even you can see they're like testing him, and they're like they're like constantly like you know drop uh, questions into his into his story to like try and catch him out, and it's all like, oh, what was uh, what were they pulled in for? And he's like, I don't know, speeding tickets or something. <laughs> So the fact he's got to like think of all these other questions that may come up that aren't even in this sort of dialogue, and once he's in, you see him like have this growing respect for this criminal fraternity that he's now been welcomed into, the banter that they have back and forth, and just the, you know, the professionalism amongst these crooks um, as they obviously plan out plan out the job and have these uh, conversations between them, and you know. Again, it's that that case of when they're having conversations. A lot of the time, it's not even about the job. It's just about like fun little anecdotes or jokes of the show between them, such as like such as the the girl that um, nice guy Eddie knew at one of his father's clubs who uh, took revenge on her boyfriend by gluing his penis to to his belly, um, so that every time he had to take a pee, he had to go into a handstand, which is still funny to me now, even though I've seen this film so many times. I think I think that's so great because you know when you th when you hear that story you're just kind of like this ridiculous story that he's telling it fits exactly into why um why mr orange needed that story in order to kind of help him fit in with this this group right yeah. and I, I, it's 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 like um i think it's just like the little details right of crafting this character and crafting this role and crafting what this world of i don't know bank robbers are <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a yeah. It's sort of like this this underground sort of criminal fraternity that they were sort of welcomed into, and the, the fact that they have this honor code between them, um, and we see it in other sort of other characters' story. The fact that Mister Blondie's caught in a warehouse with a bunch of stolen goods, and he obviously has the opportunity over the years he's seven in prison to um, basically turn in Joe, but he never does. And this is how we know that he's actually a loyal guy to Joe, and even while other members of the group try and twist uh try and frame him for the you know as being the rat we know that he's he can't be the rat because he's got such loyalty to joe and i mean even the conversation that he, he has when he comes out of prison he goes to joe's office and they're like working out the way he can get around his uh, parole officer mm. by having this fake job at the docks um it's it's just, uh, as I say, it's, it just feels always so natural with the uh, with the conversations having. It's never like, as soon as he goes in the office, it's all like, oh, good, you're here. We've got this job going down. Instead, they're having they're just having conversations about you know life on the inside or how he's going to deal with a parole officer. Very sort of minor, everyday sort of conversations when he's obviously not wrestling with <laughs> nice guy Eddie who's in his father's office. So. Yeah, because you know you, you see this character that's built from that, right? And then you, they, and then it, it kind of where do you draw the line of you know Mister Blonde being this person who just opens fire straight out during the heist, which causes this big yeah. issue of everything going wrong, or from the root of it, and and it it it, it makes it even a little bit harder to put together sometimes because then you have everybody is viewing this from their point of view and their memory. So just like in the in, in the beginning at the warehouse, you have Mr. White and Mr. Pink standing there talking about how it went down. And then Mr. Pink has a different version of what's going on and what kind of made the cops, like what when the cops came in or when the cops arrived or whatever. And, and, and you just kind of wonder, you know, like, well, is it true or is it just, you know, they're both seeing this in a different way, but still having that same conclusion that, well, there's a rat because, you know, why would the cops have shown up, right? Michael Madsen, though, is uh, Mr. Blunt. He's a very imposing sort of character. Um, and he's, Madsen himself, I mean, he's known, as he likes to say, he's known for playing charming, careless and terrifying bastards. <laughs> Um, it's also really kind of amusing the fact he's often associated with these horrific acts of violence and many we will see over the course of Tarantino's filmography yet he's completely averse to violence in real life yet he's responsible for ingraining some of the most horrific intro Im images into our head um, none more so than the torture sequence we see um, in Reservoir Dogs which I think is I think it it made it so, you know, it it really sort of made it sort of stand out. This this moment that everyone was sort of like talking about when they they talked about Reservoir Dogs and the fact that Mike, you got here, you got Madsen dancing really badly. <laughs> yeah, it should be added to Steeler's Wheel, and he's there's as he points out himself in the uh, commentary. There's you can see the shots where you can see like the um, ear mic. Because he went, he, he needed uh, the music to be able to dance to, and even then he's sort of like a drunk bear staggering around a bit. So. <laughs> but you know, I mean, that scene is really, really fun too because you don't, you don't uh, like, you know, the music turns on, and it it eventually, you know, obviously this being if if this was the first movie that I watched of Tarantino, you wouldn't know that this is a trademark mm. of his, but 
it you know as you watch more of Tarantino movies go watching it now you know that you know music and dance scenes and that sort of thing is really a Tarantino trademark he really really likes music and and in this scene you know Michael Madsen has that very moment that very intense moment where you know he you have a feeling he's gonna do something bad because he has that razor in his hand and then and he's dancing and then you just wonder what he's gonna do next right because from from what we've heard from what we've understood from you know mr white and stuff that he's a psychopath essentially so you kind of have this thing that you don't really know because i think that that's one of the really standout points of the movie is while we know we have a general idea of who these characters are and a general idea of their personalities or the you know how you know how known they are to you know joe who's running the operation um we never really understand uh until we witness what they're going to do next right so for Mr. Blonde, it was kind of this moment where you, you, you've you heard that he's a psychopath and you don't know whether he is, um, but he seems really calm in the situation. And even though they leave him there, it seems like they trust him with what he's going to do next. And then he turns out to do something, you know, completely wild where he, you know, cuts off the guy's ear and then, <laughs> and then he tries to set him on fire. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even before that, I mean, obviously we have the scene where he he turns up and just his presence antagonizes the uh, other two, in particular Mr. White, who because Mr. Blond in in Mr. White's eyes, uh, Mr. Blond is very unprofessional. The fact that he just opened fire, he just shot an unarmed girl, and just turned the whole thing into an absolute bloodbath. Much less the fact that he almost got him killed in the process, and that Mr. Blond's completely unremorseful of this. And he's he's kind of like when you think of like Mr. Pink's viewer tipping, you've got Mr. Blonde's worldview when it comes to killing people, and it's sort of like it was you know they deserve to die; they're in the way. You know, it's completely it's a it's an actor's unthinking to him. Um, is is killing means nothing to him, and even when we get into the torture sequence, he says himself he's not looking for information; he's just doing it for kicks. <laughs> And yet he's we, when he like turns up and he's like presents him with this gift to this cop that he's uh, he's kidnapped as this sort of like peace offering to the others, and we have that use of the uh, trunk shot where we see the three characters looking down and amused by the of by what they're seeing before it's revealed to obviously be this this cop. Um, and the cop himself, I mean, obviously, while he m- might not give anything away, he's obviously there to, you know, provide the, the time to uh, Mr. Orange's character and obviously finally reveal that he's been the rat this whole time, so. Uh, but no, the soundtrack itself, I mean, that song steals will. I mean, it's just now forever. Whenever you hear it, you just now, your mind instantly goes to the torture scene in Reservoir Dogs. And I think this is something that happens time and time again with Tarantino's films, is that the soundtracks become so ingrained in our head. The often, you know, unnerves and allows audiences to rediscover these sort of pop songs and then twist them with his (laughs) visuals that he gives us uh, to them. And I think when it comes to his films, I think his soundtracks are just as well known as the film's that they feature within, which is no uh, no easy task, in, uh, to say the least. But no, Steelers Wheel was certainly the first of these 
these big sort of songs. I mean, obviously, when we get into um, the likes of Pulp Fiction and uh, something we Kill Bill, where we've got that uh, Battles Without Honour and Humanity, which has now been used on every single reality talent show going when you need some drama. They normally wheel out that song. <laughs> so. But yeah, and I love the fact as well, when you, ever, you hear a piece of music in this, it's on the radio, and we have that scene where he goes out to the the car to get the gas can and the music fades out it doesn't like carry on as these as we have that tracking shot of him walking out to the car the music sort of fades out as he goes out to the car and then it fades back in when he walks in so it's very clear where the music's coming from when they're in the car and you've got it sort of punctuated with like the dj banter as well that uh often sort of marks the end of chapters as well so and uh i love all those little bits where he's like talking about you know the history of Little Green Bag and stuff like that. I think it's really cool. And when you have, when you listen to the soundtrack, they've got all those uh, radio sound bits on there as well. So yeah, for sure. And you know that scene was really great because you know we don't. I mean, for me, it's it's kind of like yeah, we've had a lot of we've had a few bloody scenes at this point, but we never really see. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's an unrated version out there which shows it. But I in in. <laughs> But oh, yeah. in, the, in the version you, I watched, um... which is on Netflix, is, uh, is like the camera pans away and you never see like what he's cutting. Obviously, you have a general idea because of where he's where he's standing. But the camera pans away and it goes to this kind of area, this doorway thing. And it says, <laughs> watch your head. And I loved it because it was just like there's this graffiti there. And all you see <laughs> is this focus on the words. And it's just like, watch your head or something like that. And I, I just thought it was, um, it was, it was so, it was so like such a little detail to have. Yeah, I mean, if you want to watch the uh, the actual ear cutting sequence, it's a, it's a, a really just a test shot that they use, and it's on the special um, features of the DVD. But it looks so ropey; it made sense why they never showed it. And as you said, I read the camera it pans away when we see him sort of straddling the cop's lap and you see him, him, this noise that's going in the background. And it's almost like the camera as the audience were looking away from this horrific act. Um, and as you said, I love that bit of graffiti as well that you just hi- pointed out to me, which I never really noticed till now. So <laughs> that's really clever. And then we obviously have, we get that uh, that very sort of black humor there where he's walking around with the ear and he's tapping it with the razor going, oh, can you hear me? Which is just terrific, but no, I don't, I don't, I hate that sequence so much. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've we've had a lot of blood up until this point. I mean, Mister Orange is there bleeding away like a stuck pig on the stairs this whole time. That's true. I that can't have been fun for Tim Roth. The fact you got to sit around in sticky corn syrup all day. <laughs> but then you know, I I really honestly I think that. All the characters are really good, but, you know, Tim Roth as Mr. Orange is such a highlight character. And I think that when you think about Tarantino and just um, the, the movies that he's done with Tim Roth, all turns out to be these really fascinating kind of characters and this fascinating entrances and, and kind of like that sort of that sort of different thing. And he loves to put Tim Roth in a diner. <laughs> There's something about, you know, Tarantino just loves uh, d- loves diners and restaurants in particular. I mean, it, I think it, it, he originally wanted to like um, the restaurants in his films were going to be Arvies, but they couldn't get the rights. And this is why you have him like making up all his own brands, such as like Red Apple cigarettes and Big Kahuna Burger, um, that punctuates his film because he could never get the, he couldn't get the rights for his uh, 
for retro dogs to like use RVs and stuff. So he just started making up his own brands that are now feature throughout all his films, and it's become this fun thing for for fans of his films to try and spot what, where these references turn up next. And um, certainly within his films, you can there's characters that link to other characters and create this very very uh, sort of Tarantino universe, um, which we we'll obviously go into. I mean, certainly when we look at Mr. White, um, his uh, his um, surname's Vega. I'm trying to remember his first name now. Uh, yes, he's Vic Vega, um, which and he's actually the brother of John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction. Um, and originally there was going to be a film where the two of them were going to be together called the Vega Brothers, but unfortunately because of other projects and the fact that they're now too old, it's one of those projects that's never going to come to fruition. But yes, uh, Vic, Vic, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde in uh, Reservoir Dogs is the brother of Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, you can look at True Romance and the the studio exec who gets caught with like uh, pulled over by the police and has all these cocaine explode over him the film he's pitching is actually the story of uh, the Burjew in Inglorious Bastards who is his uh, grandfather I believe so you can see it goes even as far back as True Romance even before he even made Inglorious Bastards he was drawing these links between characters and they're just so subtle and fun to see and like the fact that Kill Bill is sort of like in his mind, it's all like movies are in a movie. So if his if like the Captain Reservoir Dogs went out to see a movie, then Kill Bill would be like the movie that they saw. We even have like a reference to Pam Grier here when they're talking mm, about yeah. um, um, who, which is kind of like foreshadowing because she would obviously be um, take it, play the lead when we come to Jackie Brown and I you know any conversation that involves this about Pam Grier is great. <laughs> I have yet to see Jackie Brown. That's going to be a first time watch for me, so it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's one I'm keen to revisit because it was always like one I never really sort of held in the highest regard. Um, so I'm, I'm keen to revisit it and the fact that it's finally an excuse to look at a Pangrim movie on this show. So <laughs> obviously it's the, you know, the mistrust amongst the groups reaches its boiling point. We end obviously in the Mexican standoff, another tra- Tarantino trademark and one uh, that we was drawn from City of Fire. So it's a uh, Ringo Lam favourite and certainly one we've also seen used many times by John Woo as well. Um, and the Mexican standoff essentially where your old characters have guns pointed at each other and nobody's going to come off well at the end of it. And it's really from here that uh, Orange finally uh, admits to White well he you know who he is and we get some very interesting noises from both Kaito and Tim Roth it has to be said I was having flashbacks when um, Kaito's uh, doing his uh, sort of groaning to um, Bad Lieutenant when he's just basically standing naked howling into the night <laughs> which is always it's an interesting that they also use that as the cover for the DVD for Bad Lieutenant is like why would you use that as the cover for your movie so obviously that's first of our dogs a film is slower paced than here the other films in tarantino filmography and i think that's why i don't tend to return to it as much it takes a little bit longer to get going whereas the other ones ha- sort of hit you with this um constant onslaught of things um happening and with red our dogs apart from the great opening we have a little bit of a, more of a slow mm. burn uh before we obviously before things sort of pick up in the second half but I think it's still a, a movie that stands up. I think it's a great little heist thriller. Um, 
kind of very much a sort of enemy within sort of story as well and i think the fact that it's so limited in its sets and it's in and really sort of works its budget i think just really sort of plays to um its advantage really uh, before I mean, before we do wrap this up, uh, Mr. Blonde was originally Tarantino had originally written for himself uh, before ultimately settling uh, on playing Mr. Brown. Uh, that's why he ensures that he gets the best dialogue in the film. <laughs> and Kim, I mean, if you were to obviously choose your color for if we were to go out and pull our own heist, do you know what color you would be? Probably like purple or something. I don't know. You could something be like that. It's funny. My mom went huh? to purple, but I'm. I put, my mind went to purple as well for some reason. I don't know why, so... I'll be a, be a Mr. Green, I think. A couple of fun uh, facts about the film as well. Uh, obviously, Edward Bunker, who plays Mr. Blue, the elder con who's in it, only for the opening and then disappears the rest of the movie. Um, he was actually a career criminal. He wrote a number of great books, um, including Animal Factory and Little Boy Blue, as well as Dog Eat Dog. And yeah, he's uh, basically a, a pulp crime. He's a former career criminal turned pulp crime novelist. Um, his books are really great. Lawrence Tierney uh, got into an argument with Tarantino during filming, and uh, the scene where he's laying out the giving out the names, uh, Tierney managed to piss him off so much that he fired him, and then had to be basically brought together, <laughs> put back together by Keitel. Uh, Tyranny himself would often forget lines and just basically, instead of like stopping, would just keep repeating the same line over and over again. Um, while generally befuddling many of the cast members with his eccentric behaviour, um, including hanging out with Chris Penn, who plays Nice Guy Eddie, they'd arranged to have a barbecue over the weekend, and Lawrence Tyranny managed to befuddle him with this list of about six bosses he was going to catch to get him. Tim Roth um, tells a story on the DVD of uh, how the fact that he went out drinking with uh, with Tyranny one night and that he would go out take him out to introduce him fr- his friends who he calls like guys the guy who invented the gl- glow in the dark yo yo, and these were his friends as Roth and punctuates it. <laughs> but um, no, I think uh, as I was saying, uh, the film's really really great. I think it still stands up and. Well, obviously Tarantino's gone on to make much more sort of flashier affairs. I think it's uh, it's a it's still a really great uh, debut film and one which really sort of uh, marked him out as this exciting talent to watch. Really, so. But um, both of you, and if you like this one, Kim, is there anything you would pair it with at all? Yeah, I mean, there is a you know a good amount of heist movies out there, and I think that that's the general <laughs> direction that I took. Um, I don't know why, but I kept thinking about Takers, and I can't really remember what Takers was about, but it was a heist gone wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember Takers, Takers being a fairly good movie, um, uh, and that it was like 20, 2010 uh, movie that was uh, about a pretty much a, a group of bank robbers who who has this big heist in their their mind, and then they get chased down by this um detective and uh you know obviously things go horribly wrong but um it turns out pretty good but then i mean on a on a better level i guess a better heist movie would probably be the town also also in 2010 (laughs) uh directed by ben affleck um so yeah i mean the town is a really good heist movie also i remembered it being a little feeling a little different to normal ones so i i kind of like the dynamic of that movie a lot um, and I think the last one would be something like, you know, something that fits into the eight people. 
<laughs> it's Ocean's 8. Um, I really like the idea of, you know, these... I felt like the way that it was executed for Ocean's 8 with all these ladies together that come together to, to execute this heist is was um, done really, really... Yeah, kind of, uh, really, really clever. Yeah, fantastic. Um, for myself and me, we obviously mentioned already uh, taking a Pelham one, two, three, the original one, not the um, one with John Travolta. Yeah, um, don't watch that. Well, it's, I'd say that it's, it's a Tony, it's a Tony Scott movie, so it's not, it's not a bad movie. It's just not as good as the original. The original is a lot more tense thriller. Uh, obviously, City on Fire. Uh, is a great introduction to not only Ringo Lamb's work, but also um, to Cherry, in fact, doing something other than heroic gunplay movies with John Woo. Um, you can also check out Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which I think is a real key influence here, as well as uh, Kansas City Confidential from 1952 as well. So those are the ones I would um, I would recommend uh, checking out there. Awesome. As I said, this brings us into tonight's episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us, and maybe leave us a review. You can check out our full archive of episodes at Movies in Tea Pod. Cast. Podcast. Yes, it's Movies in Tea Podcast. Dot um, And I said we're on both Facebook and Instagram as well, so come and say hi to us there. Let us know what you think about Tarantino movies. Uh, but Kim, where are we going to next? So yeah, the next place that we're going to be going is going to be 1994's Pulp Fiction. Yeah, A really well-known movie. I don't think it needs that much introduction. I don't think even people <laughs> who haven't seen it probably, uh, in terms of iconic scenes, this one I feel like is, is pretty high up on, on the list there. Yep, I think um, this is one of the Pulp Fiction is one of those movies you've probably seen just through the amount of times it's been referenced in other films. But uh, no, the a trilogy of um, of crime noir tales are brought together um, and shown in a very interesting order to create uh, Tarantino's true breakout movie, um, which is obviously 1974's Pulp Fiction. Um, introducing into the cast Samuel Jackson, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth again making an appearance along with Ving Rhymes, Enuma Thurman, and of course John Travolta. Um, the film obviously being most noteworthy for giving us our longest Tarantino cameo ever. But all that is to come on our next episode. But uh, until then, thank you to my co-host Kim. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll be back next time to talk about 94's Pulp Fiction. Until then, good night. I can't stop this feeling Deep inside of me Girl, you just don't realize What you do to me When you hold me In your arms so tight You let me know Everything's alright Yeah.